Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Pastor Dave and worship team. Good morning, Grantham Church. As always, it's, it's good to see you in worship this morning. We are continuing our Advent series, The Anticipated Christ. This is the second message in a three-part series. You could kind of look at this like a movie trilogy. So if you missed the last one, it probably would help to go back and, and listen to that. Uh, I said three parts. There's actually four Sundays in Advent, as you know. So uh, Sunday, December 18th, we will have a, a service, the anticipated Christ through scriptures and song in a lessons and carols format. So ho- hopefully you can be here for that as well. Last Sunday, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and if you're familiar with that, or of course you were here last Sunday, you know that is about the fall of humanity into sin, and we talked about how our sin and Satan's role shows that we are in a cosmic battle between good and evil, and we reflected on our own brokenness very intentionally. We reflected on our brokenness, the realities of our troubled world, and why we cannot save ourselves. And uh, you may have come away from that message with several questions, and one of them could be, well, Pastor, if our world is eventually going to come to an end, why even do anything? Well, we're going to look at that next Sunday, so come next Sunday for that as we, we talk about the future judgment and Christ's second coming. This morning, I'd like to pick up right where we left off last week, thinking about evil, and address what God plans to do about it, particularly what his justice and judgment looks like in this present evil age. The prophets foretold that God would come to deliver his people and liberate a broken creation. These prophecies, they generated hope in God's people. They built up an anticipation for the Lord's judgment. And so by the first century, there were certain messianic expectations about how God would judge the world and fulfill his promises. So in this second message this morning, I'm inviting us to see how Jesus challenged those expectations and how he challenges our own expectations today, revealing the judgment of a loving God who wants us to trust in his wisdom and his ability to set the world right. So let's begin with our scripture reading this morning. If you have a Bible, we uh, will open up to Isaiah chapter 35. If you don't have a Bible, there's a a pew Bible in front of you, or you can open up a Bible on your phone, your smartphone. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah's pretty much in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 35, I'm going to read this chapter of poetry here. 
The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the, the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sign will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That is from the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus. He was an eighth century prophet who spoke on God's behalf to the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He told them that judgment was coming from Assyria and then Babylon, which were their enemies, if they persisted in their idolatry and the oppression of the poor. But it wasn't just a message of judgment, but also a message of hope. In fact, anybody who's a prophet and is a true prophet never just spoke judgment. They always paired it with hope. Now, Isaiah speaks out against the sins of God's people. He offers warnings of, warnings of judgment. He says that because of their refusal to repent, they will be going into exile. But then he prophesies that after the exile, God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. God will judge the evil of the nations. He will cleanse his people with a purifying fire. And then his kingdom will come to restore creation and usher in a new age on the earth. That's what Isaiah was describing there in Isaiah 35. You might be wondering, how will this happen? You see, in various places in Isaiah, we hear that from a seed and a root of Jesse, which was the kingly line of David, would come a Messiah to establish God's kingdom forever, and this Messiah would deal with sin. This Messiah would deal with death and would judge the world, setting the, the wrongs right, ensuring that the wicked get what is coming to them. And you can hear that there in verse 4. Maybe some of you were like, uh-oh, when you read that verse, let's look at it. 
Think about what we do with it. I read from the New International Version, it said, your God will come, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. The New Revised Standard Version says, here is your God, he will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense, right? That is making amends, he's gonna make amends. The English Standard Version says, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. In the New Living Translation, which we often read from here, it says, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. Now, is there anything that we can say to reconcile this with a God who looks like Jesus? For a lot of Christians, let's be honest, they'll read that verse and they don't flinch. (laughs) There's nothing nothing about that that would cause them to pause or, or wonder how you would square that with Jesus. In fact, they would say, well, now that's fitting with Jesus. Just look at Jesus in Revelation, which we will do next Sunday. But I submit to you that what we think is happening there is not actually happening. In fact, the the, the author there, John, is turning violent metaphors on their head. As you'll see, it's not the blood of his enemies, it's his own blood that soaks his garments as he rides that horse. So let's think about this verse. What, what can we say about it? How, how do we reconcile this to the God who looks like Jesus? Because if we're getting our portrait of God from Jesus, and remember that's pretty important because what, you, what, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, and getting our portrait of God right is critical. We need to deal with this question, especially as it relates to judgment. Listen to what the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says about this verse and his commentary on Isaiah chapters 1 through 39. He said, the term vengeance includes a quite negative connotation that we readily assign to it. But it also includes the positive dimension that God will come to right wrong, to order chaos, to heal sickness, to restore life to its rightful order. So think about that when you hear the word vengeance. Again, I want to submit to you this morning that what Jesus does is helps us redefine the word. Some of us think we just rather discard of the word. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that we redefine it. We rethink it. As we know in the Hebrew Scriptures and within Second Temple Judaism of Jesus' day, it was commonly accepted that this vengeance looked like God working through the sword of the Messiah and his armies. And so an image like this one here on the screen captures that sort of expectation. Uh, this here is a depiction of Judas Maccabeus. If you grew up in the Catholic Church or other high church traditions, you may be familiar with the intertestamental book, the Maccabees, right? Raise your hand if you ever heard of the Maccabees. So it's, it's describing this history between the Old and the New Testament. And Judas Maccabeus was a Jewish priest who led a rebellion known as the Maccabean Revolt against the Seleucid Empire around 160 B.C., before the Roman Empire came into Palestine to occupy it about 100 years later. This revolt was successful, according to them, and Judas was hailed as Messiah. That was until he died in battle and was no longer seen as the Messiah. Why? Well, because in their thinking, 
the true Messiah, again, that is the one that God has promised in the Old Testament, isn't supposed to die. This is why many just forgot about Jesus after Good Friday. Maybe even walking, those two walking on the road to Emmaus. It's over. The show is over. Why? Because in their thinking, there is no room for the idea of a dying and rising Messiah. But still, the Jewish people here with Judas are going to celebrate him and his efforts, the whole Maccabean revolt. And that was one of the things that they're remembering on Palm Sunday with the palms. They're remembering this Maccabean revolt. And they're looking forward to the time when God's Messiah, who won't die, will come and destroy his enemies and their enemies. So think about this. This is less than 200 years before Jesus. And by the first century, there were still these messianic expectations that someone like King David or Judas Maccabeus would come and finally do what God had promised to do. And for them, that meant bring violent vengeance against their enemies. And that's what judgment, as I said, looked like in their minds. But that's not what it looked like to Jesus. Would you open up in your Bibles again to Luke chapter 4? I'm just going to point out a few scriptures there from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, Jesus, after doing some ministry, returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And by this time, they've heard lots of things about Jesus. They're very excited about the hometown boy coming back home, right? And and, uh, and them, of course, having this personal connection with him made it all the more exciting. In verse 17, it says that Jesus went into the synagogue. He is, as a guest speaker, given the scroll of Isaiah. We don't know if he chose this text or if it just happened to be sort of the lectionary reading of the day. But they give him the section of the scroll from Isaiah, our Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he reads. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in your Bible, you should have a little letter off to the side. Mine is an H. If you look down in the footnotes, it tells you what Jesus is reading from. Again, that's Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. If you flip over in your Bible, we won't do it, but you can trust me or you can go look yourself. Isaiah 61, verse 2. You'll notice that Jesus stops right in the middle of a verse. He doesn't continue to read the part after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is the year of Jubilee. Which, which every 50 years, all debts were supposed to be forgiven. There's no evidence this is, was ever actually practiced, but it's in the Bible. We're very selective in what we apply. You, you know this. And so Jesus stops in the middle of the verse because the verse continues, it goes on, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read it. He rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and he starts to teach and he tells them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if you keep reading, you will see that the townsfolk in Nazareth are not happy about what Jesus has to say. Not only that he stops in the middle of a verse, but he goes on to talk about God's blessings upon Gentiles, upon the enemies of Israel. 
And you can see here that Jesus is purposely challenging their understanding of Messiah and his mission. This is a messianic text. And Jesus is essentially saying that I've come to fulfill it, meaning that's me. I am the promised Messiah. But the Messiah you are expecting is not the Messiah you are getting. We need to see this. We need to see this clearly. Jesus is going to redefine vengeance for us. He's inviting his audience to rethink God's judgment and a loving God's judgment, particularly against their enemies. It's not only the townsfolk in Nazareth who have a difficult time with what Jesus is saying and doing, is it? You know, after some time goes by in his ministry, uh, Jesus isn't meeting messianic expectations. His teachings are getting more difficult. People are starting to walk away. His own cousin, John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus in the Jordan, you'll recall, is now in prison for preaching against King Herod, right? That fox, as Jesus called him. And so John begins to doubt and to question whether Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. And so a few chapters later in Luke, Luke chapter 7, this is what Luke tells us. John's disciples told him all, about all these things that Jesus was doing. And he called two of them and he sent them to the Lord. He sent them to Jesus to ask this question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? <laughs> right? Because Jesus isn't fulfilling messianic expectations. And so when the men came to Jesus, they said what John the Baptist told them to say. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? And then verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. Now, why is Luke telling us this? And Jesus is about to say it. That is, everything that is prophesied about Messiah is happening except this one little thing. So Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. And of course, he's pulling here from Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, and other places in the prophets. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I like the voice translations from some translators in Houston, Texas. They say it this way. Whoever is not offended by me is blessed indeed. Whoever is not offended by me is blessed indeed. You know, this can apply to our own experience and expectations, can it? It challenges us even still today when we want to imagine God is this sort of Zeus character who throws lightning bolts down on our enemies. But the Lord has a different way of judging the world. The truth is, Jesus as Messiah still gives us reasons to be offended and stumble. Think about some of those reasons. As we saw back then, and it's still challenging for folks today, the coming of Jesus as Messiah was unexpected. It remains a stumbling block to many people for various reasons. And you just think, as, as, as uh, this post-Christian culture accelerates more and more, we see a great secularization and, 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 and 
pluralism within America, these ideas become increasingly offensive. They become increasingly a stumbling block that Jesus was born of a virgin to a poor family, not a royal one, from a small podunk village. He claimed to be the Messiah and God in the flesh. He said, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was born, I am. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm deity. He calls us to repent of our sins and of our own way of living. He demands total surrender and allegiance to his kingdom. That is, Jesus gets to define who you are. You don't get to make that up as you go or just follow the trends on TikTok. He won by dying on a cross. He says that we should follow him. We, we also should take up our cross and do as he, is, he has done. He calls us to trust and Calvary love over human vengeance. But you say, well, but, but what about judgment? Isn't there something to that? What does that look like? Is, is God doing something about evil? And can we expect God to do anything now? Or will that come at the final judgment? How should we live in the meantime as, as we wait on that judgment? Well, I hope to address all those questions by looking at what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome who were facing an, an increase in evil and injustice in their own day in the first century, likely asking some of the same questions. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 12. Beginning with verse 12, he said, Be joyful in hope. There's some Advent for you. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, why is Paul saying this? Well, let's keep following his thinking. Why should you be joyful in hope? Why should you be patient in affliction and remain faithful in prayer? And then he recalls the words of Jesus. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That is from Deuteronomy. The King James Version, which some of you may have learned it or heard growing up this way. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. But look at verse 19 there. Look at that phrase, what Paul says. Leave room for God's wrath. In other words, God has a way of dealing with evil. He doesn't need your help. God has a way of dealing with evil. He doesn't need your help. So in other words, let God address evil in his way and leave the getting even and the making amends, right, recompense to God. What is this way of dealing with evil in the present? What is this wrath that we are leaving room for? Well, Paul had already explained that to these believers back in chapter 1. Let's look at a few verses from chapter 1. Paul said, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Heaven is revealing this wrath against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So it's like they're, they're plugging up their ears. They don't want to hear the truth. 
In fact, if it doesn't align with what they think is the truth, they will shame you to shut up about the truth. This is the way of the world. Verse 24, he said, therefore, that this is how the wrath of God's being revealed, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lust. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. What is he saying? This is, again, how we leave room for God's wrath because how that is occurring in the world is God giving people over to their sin. Look at this. The wrath of a loving creator doesn't look like God personally going after people, right, with the sword, with pestilence and pandemics, or with cancer, or with other natural evils. Rather, the brokenness of the world is the result of our sin, and as we saw in Genesis 3, and of Satan, and those willful acts of sin continue to trigger a built-in mechanism within creation. Think about this. It triggers a built-in mechanism within creation so that when we transgress the design of the divine programmer. You IT folks are gonna like the way I'm talking about this, right? When you transgress the design of the divine programmer, we experience that system, in a sense, rejecting the virus that is pervading it. Right, this is like the creation groans. You know what Paul said in Romans 8? Creation is crying out, this world is not right. The world is crying out that we are being mistreated. Things are not as they should be. And again, what I hear Paul saying is the wrath of God, this recompense, this judgment is first and foremost in the present evil age. And we'll talk about future next week. But in the present evil age is built within as a mechanism within creation that we see the consequences of what we've done. So to be clear, Paul is saying that the wrath of God has been placed within the operating system of creation. It is called suffering the consequences of our actions. Suffering the consequences of our action. If anybody's familiar with some martial arts, you may have heard of Aikido, right? This is God's divine Aikido. It's a form of martial arts that turns the violence of the opponent back onto themselves that all of that energy, all of that violence is neutralized and turned back to themselves. It's God's boomerang justice, right? This is what I hear Paul saying. And Paul said something else about this in his letter to the Galatians, which also can help clarify this idea of judgment in the present evil age. He called it reaping what we sow. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, he said, don't be misled. Church, don't be misled. Folks cannot mock the justice of God. Folks cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. Again, hear what Paul said in Romans. Leave room for God. Leave room for the justice of God. In other words, we might think of it this way. Give it some time. Give it some time. 
And Paul is saying to the Galatians here, what you reap is what you sow. It's a principle of nature. Those who live to please the Spirit, though, they'll harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And so from that, we can say that if we're concerned about evil, and particularly the evil that has been done to us, and maybe some of you are already there, you're already thinking about that. When's God gonna make this right? Then we can rest and we can trust if we'll allow room for God's wrath that if the evil and those perpetuating it continue with unrepentant hearts, in time, God's way of judging sin will ultimately reveal the truth and expose their wickedness. And there will be consequences that follow. You remember the leader of the Sanhedrin, uh, when the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus were proclaiming the resurrection, you remember what his idea was, give it some time, let it go. If it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. If it, uh, or if it's, if it's not of God, it will come to an end, but you gotta give it some time. Give it some time. Just as we do in our gardens when we sow seeds. Give it some time, which is why we hear Paul in Romans 12, 12 telling us to be patient in affliction as we bless and do not curse and we pray in hopes that disaster will be averted. And let's make that clear, right? As Jesus followers, we're not sitting back saying, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, like Jonah, I'm waiting for God to smite these people. Rather, one of the things that we learn in that story is that God's heart is grieved. And just as God's heart is grieved, we too should be grieved, even by those who've done evil to us. Right? One of the things that we learn in the New Testament is God is patient. We think he's forgotten, but the New Testament writers say he is patient because he does not want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Instead, he wants all to repent. He wants us to, to experience his love, his mercy, and his grace. And so our hearts should reflect the Lord's heart, amen? You can think about like Jesus when he strolls into Jerusalem for the last time. Do you remember that day? When he's riding on the donkey. He looks over the city of Jerusalem and what does Jesus do? He weeps. He sees their destruction coming and he weeps. A city that will reject him, yet he weeps and he grieves. And verse nine and 10 says, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up, right? If we, we stay faithful and true to God's heart. In verse 10, Paul said, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Brothers and sisters, if you've not heard anything else up to this point, please hear this. Our faithfulness to Christ in continuing to love our neighbors and enemies and doing good to others in this broken world is evidence that we really trust in God's wisdom and his power to right the wrongs. When we do good to others, we show that we trust in the wisdom and in the power of God to right the wrongs in his time and in his way. 
It's our commitment to doing good. Despite the evil and the injustice which we see and that we ourselves have experienced, and remember, don't forget, we're a part of that too. That helps us, though, to access the peace and the freedom of the anticipated Christ. It is there that we can know the deep, abiding love of God for ourselves and for others as we wait on his coming. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Folks, when, when you can come into that, right? as Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, we've already heard from, he, he put it this way, when it comes to those imprecatory psalms, those psalms like, oh, God, get, get my enemies, crush them. Bash their babies' heads against rocks. It's in the Bible. How do we understand those texts? What do we do with our longings for justice, our cries that something is not right, and God, what are you going to do about it? Walter Brueggemann says, like God as our therapist, we give it over to him in those psalms. We are saying, I refuse to take vengeance for myself, I am not God, therefore I cannot judge the way God does, right? And in that we are trusting him. In that we are trusting his wisdom and his power and his justice, just as we are being called to do in Advent. Finally, friends, here are some questions to help us reflect and respond together. Number one, what evil or injustice, past or present, maybe something happened to you a long time ago, you're still carrying that around, or maybe it's all the stuff we we looked at, the mess of the world that we talked about last Sunday. What is it that is troubling you, and what is wrong that needs God's attention? Think about that for a moment. Question number two. Will you trust, that's the invitation, will you trust in God's wisdom and his ability to make things right? I know it's hard, but the Holy Spirit can help us. Will you trust in God's wisdom and his ability to make things right? And I know, folks, that's a process, especially when those wounds are fresh. But along the way in your healing, can you hear the voice of the Lord Give it over to your divine therapist. Give it to me. And then number three, instead of carrying it around, being anxious, being robbed of peace and joy, or being vengeful, where you're angry and bitter, will you give it to God so that you can walk in love and freedom as you wait on him? Would you close your eyes for just a moment And I'm going to ask you these questions one more time. And this time, as I ask those questions, I just invite you to enter into a moment of prayer and a conversation with God about these things. In other words, what I'm asking you to do is to move from your head to your heart. Not just hear this as information, as a message, but enter into it as a conversation with God. Let's do that. Again, brothers and sisters, what evil or injustice is troubling you?
what is wrong? Would you tell God about that? Might be a word, it might be a phrase, might be a sentence or two. Just give it to God. Tell Him. And if you trust in God's wisdom and His ability to make things right, would you just say that to Him? As you've given these, these burdens to Him, just say, God, I trust you. I, I'm trusting in your wisdom and in your power to set things right. Maybe to help us do that, just where you're at with your eyes closed, just cup your hands in front of you. And in your imagination, just see the sin, see the wrong, see the evil, see the injustice that you've named to God. And just lift that up. Just lift that up right where you're at as a way of signifying and symbolizing, God, I'm giving this to you. Holy Father, we want to walk in freedom. We want to walk in love as we wait on you to bring justice to the earth. Lord, we, we trust that your way is better. We trust that in your love, you are calling even the most hardened heart to yourself. That no one who's still living and breathing is beyond redemption. No culture is beyond salvation. And so we give these people, we give these problems, we give what is broken in our world to you. And we say together, Lord, corporately as a church, that we trust you. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.